And I suddenly thought, wow, I could make this little jumping cuckoo monk a lot of money. Greetings, lover of films featuring nuns, accordion music, and Oliver Reed. I'm Phil Walsh. And I'm Jim Hall, welcoming you to this fifth edition of Midnight Video. Tonight, we start things off not with a bang, but a wimple as Sister Florinda Balkan kicks back against patriarchy in 15th century Spain and dreams of hide-and-seek with a cow carcass in 1974's Flavie the Heretic. It's a right old moral quagmire of dead bodies down at the docks and a bundle of hot cash for Tilda Swinton's hempecked husband with director Bellatar displaying his unusual approach to making a pulse-pounding thriller in The Man from London. And a physics professor finds a lifetime of scientific learning utterly redundant when a magic ring transports him to a realm of sword and sorcery action on the counter-earth known as Gore. So, Phil, looking at your plastic bags uh, by the microphone, you had a little trip to FOP. Yeah, I got some little goodies uh, yeah. on the way here. FOP being a reasonably priced CDs, DVDs and bookstore for people, not in the UK. Yeah, there's a few around the, the country, aren't there? There used to be a lot more, but yeah, and they then ran into some Yeah, let's, let's not go into all of the uh, <laughs> ups and downs. But yeah, no, I got some of the uh, shameless releases, um, New York Ripper and Strip Nude for Your Killer. But just in case we get any protest letters from uh, women, the, the two or three women that listen to the show, <laughs> uh, you've bought them mostly because you like the yellow spines on the cases. Yeah, because I already have them. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> it's dedication. Purely, it's purely aesthetics on my shelves. But yeah, and um, you've just got hold of the Psychotronic Encyclopedia. At long last, um, I, I was having it out, <laughs> renting it out, no, what's the word, loaning or, it right. from the library for... Uh, extended periods of time but yeah I really wanted to yeah, we should copy. just explain what it is this was uh, it's a compilation well it wasn't a compilation it was a compiled by Michael Weldon I think his name is yeah, so that's it's right. a, uh, probably the first film reference book I read cover to cover uh, some time back but um, yeah hopefully that will give us some ideas for things on future shows yeah definitely I mean I've got that and I've got the uh, new edition of Kim Newman's um, Nightmare movies yeah as well. and Kim Newman who we saw a couple of weeks back uh, when the rest of the world was celebrating the royal wedding down with the monarchy down with the monarchy he didn't shout that from the <laughs> stage did he he didn't no, unfortunately no. But he was fantastic, uh, very erudite, and um, interviewed by Mark Hermode. Yeah, but um, who was who gave him a lot of free time to talk? Uh, Kermode usually likes to do all the chin wagging, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, so he kept himself in check. It was well didn't balanced. mind too much about the Exorcist getting a, <laughs> a few a few kicks. Yeah, like the uh, was it Exorcist to the Heritage? It's a more interesting film, said Newman. <laughs> oh dear. But uh, yeah, uh, Nightmare Movies again, a book that I've not read the new edition, but the old one from 20 years back was fantastic. I look forward. It's been really expanded now. It's kind of, what, 200% new material? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of footnotes. I'm only like six chapters in. Um, there's loads of like really interesting footnotes that he's added. And yeah, I've still got a long way to go yeah. to get to the new stuff. But, but really covering the history of film, uh, horror films from Night of the Living Dead, which was kind of a turning point when they became more about. 
not to be relishing it, but gore and splatter, they become much more visceral rather than the kind of atmospheric uh, hammer and um, I suppose um, Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe adaptations of as well. But, mm. um, but uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that new edition. No, it's, it's definitely worth the money. But yeah, Psychotronic and uh, Nightmare Movies hopefully will give us some ideas for new films. And I hope um, hope you listeners out there will as well. We've got, uh, just to reiterate, we have a Facebook page with a discussion um, section on there. So we, we've had some really interesting um, suggestions on there already, but do do keep them coming in. But yeah, we've, uh, we've got some lined up as well um, from the suggestions. We're not just uh, indulging our own uh, obsessions. No, <laughs> we've also got enough films for this week, haven't we? So oh, we have. Should we press on? Yeah, let's crack on Okey with Okie Why? Why is God male? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, all male. Even the twelve apostles, all twelve of them, males. Very loosely inspired by historical events surrounding a Muslim invasion of Italy in the early 1400s, 1974's Flavia the Heretic might sound like a prime slice of nunsploitation, but the film has genuine feminist revolutionary zeal among all the torture, sexual frustration and barking mad visions. Disgusted and incensed by the male and Christian-dominated world around her, Sister Flavia rapidly transforms from a miffed nun to vigilante, guru, judge in her own kangaroo court, an ersatz Joan of Arc figure. It also features a rape in a pigsty. I did say Flavia before, but you did say Flavia. I mean, labia, labia. <laughs> You're determined to get that explicit rating on iTunes, aren't you? Yeah. I don't want kids to listen to this show. Not your kids, yeah. Um, well, Flavia is its dubbed throughout this, yeah. Um, we'll stick with that. Let's do it. It's good enough for the nuns. I might slip into Flavia now when you get there. Dear, dear, dear. <laughs> Nunsploitation, quite of a big sleaze genre, subgenre, um, but less acceptable than black exploitation. Although the only link is the exploitation <laughs> suffix. Yeah, it's kind of it's something that I'm sure if you said it to someone, they'd say, "Oh, right, yeah," but they wouldn't be able to name the film. No, but it explains it. Uh, yes, it explains itself because I think mm. yeah, I, I was quite keen for us to cover some nunsploitation, and the film I suggested was Killer Nun, who's is that Anita Pallenberg, which yeah sounds like the sleaziest title you can imagine but um, looking at the trailer it looked pretty dull so I was glad when you um, flagged up this little clip on YouTube which makes uh, well it made it look very interesting and it's a great film it's um, a surprisingly excellent film it's well made but it has production a wise and story wise I don't know if it is slightly marred by the exploitation yeah uh, um, it components. does it does definitely have some of that in the things you would expect from non-exploitation would be sexual repression um, which then comes to a head in all sorts of orgies lesbotic orgies <laughs> um, and yeah probably a lot of um, medieval or renaissance torture um, delivered with some relish the kind of stuff Ken Russell would approve of well the devils is probably the um, no I think there is a precedent I think the devils did kickstart the non-exploitation thing didn't it I would have thought so because this is this is kind of not it's only 74 so a couple of years later later, but I think I think once that had been done they saw the potential they saw the the potential the Italians saw the potential (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah, this does have, um, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. The impressive thing with this is that it does have those elements in there, but it's a, yeah, it's a kind of a political movie. It's, um, I don't know, probably sounding a bit pretentious. I do really like films like this, and I can't think of many others. Uh, bizarrely, I think the other one I'd think of would be the, the original of John Waters' Hairspray. Right. When the protagonist is female and you're, as a man, you're sort of asked to identify with, with that character and the world surrounding her and almost see men as periphery characters okay yeah which is kind of how i often feel women probably have to watch films with that kind of i mean that's i'm sure where that's they're only presented quote. as yeah mm. but um i mean that's probably a discussion for another time but it's yeah it's a strange thing to watch something and really identify with this character and how the world must be for her and probably for a lot of women because she's in this completely male-dominated world. Although, yeah, she's surrounded by women, but it's men who are making the rules outside there, and she just sees so much abuse. There's a man who put her in there as well, her father. Her father, her who's yeah. dressed strangely like Vincent Price in Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lookalikes in this film, which I'll come on to <laughs> a little later. But, yeah, amazingly, uh, amazingly impressive. I mean, that reiterate it a really political feel to it but it's a very well made movie it is intelligently made Florinda Balkan deserves a, a shout for her a shout out to Sister yeah. Flavia yeah um, she's her performance is fantastic yeah quite restrained mm -hmm. um, and she does look like an iconic figure she kind of looks a little like somewhere between Sigourney Weaver and Catherine Hepburn she's quite a sort of tall angular yeah, she's Brazilian. Is isn't she? she? Yeah, right. she's Brazilian. And some people might know her from Lucio Fulci's. Um, Given the amount of pubic skin. hair that's on show here, <laughs> I was going to make a <laughs> an obvious joke about a Brazilian. But yeah, she she performs admirably in the in the lead role. Um, so much potential for going crazy and sort of upping the ante, I think. Yeah, because um, but everyone else around her seems to do the madness for her in a way do the madness <laughs> it's the great new dance craze yeah uh, yeah because one of the opening scenes in this um is was it the cult of the is it tarantula or tarantella tarantella which i'm not even sure what they're meant to be are they meant to be local insane people or are they meant to be genuinely possessed or something i think they're local people who become possessed or because there's a lot it. of that thing again going back to ken russell's the devils there's that idea of um mass hysteria or hysteria being a kind of uh, contagion mm. so when these these sort of little traveling troops who just shake around and make a horrible racket with some very basic instruments oh the minstrels yeah, yeah. That, that was amazing atonal music yeah i was really impressed but they for some reason the nuns decide to let them into the uh the, the convent and then it gets passed around uh, doesn't yeah it? it gets contagious and yeah you do get the exploitation moments in fact when i was watching this on my computer uh, it did stall a few times, um, the disc, and horrendously, one of them was the scene when this nun was getting a, uh, her boobs out <laughs> and addressing, it's kind of a tapestry or a mural of some saint that she's very uh, taken with, <laughs> but it just froze there for two or three minutes, I was thinking, I'll go and make a cup of tea now. <laughs> so the neighbour knocked on the door and came Well, up. I do worry about my neighbours if I'm watching these kind of films, because there's just lots of females screaming and, and dialogue like... Pray God for forgiveness, you must be punished for your sins. Yeah, because I have to watch a lot of mine on my laptop with my headphones on because of that, my yeah. little boy wandering around. Uh, yeah, who I knows what really... his first words will be. I know, well he took his first steps when I was watching a Serbian film um, <laughs> on my laptop with my headphones on, fortunately, but I'll never forget that. Magical you know? moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, um, 
the madness the madness in it and this contagious madness seems to be all the characters around her Flavia herself seems um, a little dislocated from it almost she certainly seems to be questioning the godhead as well doesn't she I suppose that in herself the fact she's surrounded by conformity and yet she seems just taken aback but she doesn't have to act in a sort of (laughs) going back to the Bee Gees in Sergeant Pepper (laughs) she doesn't have to do any sort of outrageous uh, physical acting there just the fact that she looks uncomfortable with the whole thing is enough um, yeah it's good to use some restraint sometimes yeah yeah although restraint doesn't really <laughs> isn't a word you'd use about this film particularly also it's quite interesting is the depiction of the times I thought you know with the with her friend who her childhood friend she's grown up with it is uh, Abraham Abraham the Jew the Hasidic yeah. Jew who um, looks I, more than well, a little like Matthew McFadden I thought I was thinking of that, but do you know who else I thought? Who this else? will only be relevant to English listeners. Uh, Bernard Cribbins. He looks like a young Bernard <laughs> Cribbins. He has that kind of hangdog yeah. expression. I'm trying to think of one of his his earlier films. Peter, um, yeah, he, when he was in Peter Sellers' movies in oh, the okay. 60s, like Two Way Stretch. and. Uh, yeah, it could be. Matthew McFadden was definitely... Because uh, I'd only seen him recently in uh, Any Human Heart, the William Boyd adaptation, so... Um, but yeah, Abraham the Jew. Can you just remind me what was his role in this? Was he had been he'd been given as part of a dowry to the convent or something? Because he was f- he was owned by Flavia's father, yeah. uh, Flavia's father, Flavia's uh, <laughs> and he seemed to be. Paying she for was the quite. Sh- I think his purpose was for her sort of in the film was just mm. to question why he why he is doing what he's doing why is he happy why isn't he rebelling and he yeah, just accepts he's quite a chilled out role. character isn't he yeah he's quite philosophical isn't well he? he turns up delivering some little sermon about the real first woman being uh, was it Lydia yeah fashioned from dung and um, which would you know gives you an idea of the kind of um, world view that was around <laughs> uh, which obviously Flavia's not very happy with but he's kind of presenting this as um, I don't know what are you going to do about it (laughs) but then the other character that she uh, Flavia meets who's a bit of a guru figure is Sister Agatha a senior nun who's again I thought was really fantastic in it she's completely off the rails Um, Lord knows what she's been doing because she must have been there for her whole life and what her character's meant to be in her 50s at least oh at least uh, I'd say probably in her 60s maybe but you know in this she's ranting on about how she should have been the Pope (laughs) another opportune moment for my computer to freeze was when uh, she was pissing while standing up which I thought was significant she's pissing standing up Mm. which obviously is kind of meant to be some comment on uh, male female power roles or whatever but yeah she's nuts and the two of them together I'm sorry to keep doing the lookalikes because I've got one more after this one as well the two of them together because she's a shorter little hunched character who's just cackling to herself a lot although she, she is great she doesn't do the conventional I'm a lunatic performance she has a real mad woman mad old woman's glee uh, yeah. sparkle in her eye and when the muslims invade sort of halfway into the film she's really great isn't she just sort of um belittling the men for running away yes yeah and telling the women what's the line why do you run there's nothing the muslims can do to you that the christian hasn't done already <laughs> yeah she's not just a loon she really has this sort of political agenda she rem- reminded me a bit of um have you seen the pasolini movie the gospel according to St Matthew I think no but here the great thing with that is his his figure of Christ in it I think he said was meant to be a Marxist kind of figure he's striding around rather than being all kind of meek he's striding and just going up to people and you know really delivering all these proclamations but going back to it uh, Agatha little old lady Agatha 
and Flavia herself, seeing the two of them together, it did remind me of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was even a little physical resemblance, I think, because Flavia just looks so distant uh, from this, with these really big dark eyes. Mm. Are, I mean, it, it's possible because they did do that Sister Beryl, the leaping nun. <laughs> sketch but uh, <laughs> no little moments like that I think when you have a film this serious it, it, your mind does wander off to those kind of uh, thoughts yeah because it is it is, it is quite a serious film yeah you know, politically uh, it is but yeah it does have really grim stuff happening in it as well god how could we forget this there's a really gratuitous horse castration I was going to say <laughs> that was really something I wasn't expecting um, neither was the horse <laughs> I was very surprised at that. I mean, I suppose it's to be expected in to some degree. Yeah, from I mean, there's but even though it's not a continuous shot, I doubt it was a special effect. I think that was probably because they do cut away before cutting away. If you see what I mean? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, horse castration, um, nipple slicing, hide and seek with hide and seek, and well, there's a lot of rape actually. Yeah, rape in a pigsty, which uh, I didn't want to sound facetious earlier, but it is just a weird scene. It is a very strange scene. I mean, this is one of the many things that really tip Flavia over the edge. That um, yeah, cause it's it's a local girl, and the new duke is it, who's coming from France, mm-hmm. um, just goes up to this girl feeding the pigs and um, has his way with her, and doesn't seem to give a monkeys when um, doesn't give a pig doesn't give a pigs. Um, when Flavia just shouts at him and I think she throws something at his head, he just sort of looks a little bit uh, irritated and carries on. But these are all great things that really make you think, God, yeah, what would I do in that situation? It yeah, really makes you think in a different... It puts yourself in somebody else's shoes. With it being such a politically motivated... Well, certainly it looks like a politically motivated film. Maybe this was... you know, People, the the gentry, could just go around raping people, you know. Oh, the, don't the, doubt in it. In front of the nuns and not, not oh, give don't, a toss areas of the world where that's still the case (laughs) (laughs) towards the end of the film there's even more madness with the yeah there's the Muslim invasion and this is my final lookalike it's Anthony Higgins as the sort of Ahmed isn't he who becomes Flavia's lover although on a kind of I think there's he he hardly says anything does he no Um, but there's kind of an understanding that they've recognized each other as quite revolutionary souls or did I misread that no, yeah, it's but it's not like she falls for him because like he's, he's a beefcake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's kind of, but he. I think she's reminded of. Oh yes, chap the, at the, beginning, the Muslim she sees at the she beginning. She's beheaded because Higgins in this. It wasn't until you told me it was Anthony Higgins from who's better known from Peter Greenaway's The Draftsman's Contract and Moriarty from uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. He looks very effeminate in this, and when I was first watching it, I actually did think because he has very long eyelashes and he has like and he has coal around coal his, his yeah. eyes, and he has this goatee, but it looks quite scrappy. It looks like it could have been a theatrical, you know, mesh beard, slightly wispy. Uh, I thought they'd actually got a woman, and uh, they got some effeminate, um, sorry, androgynous sort of looking woman, and but um, Antonia Higgins. But <laughs> do you know who I think he looks like? Uh, I can't. No, I can't. Clive Barker. A young Clive or an, uh, an old Clive? A, a combination. Clive. Um, a combination. Because he looks like the young Clive. He's very young in this, but it's the current Clive has that kind of little goatee beard and thing, doesn't he? He does. Oh, let's not be cruel <laughs> to his polyps. <laughs> it yeah, could, was, it could uh, be you wearing patchwork jeans one day. <laughs> I was quite chuffed to see uh, Higgins in there. I mean, like you say, I, I only really know him from Draftsman's Contract and. Um, Moriarty and mm-hmm. young Sherlock Holmes so it was interesting I think this was the role that 
broke him out. <laughs> well, I've read that he did Drussman's contract thinking it was going to be this big breakout role for him. and um, ah. Obviously, Greenaway had been watching uh, Flavia there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the history of this film is, because I think it has existed in cut prints for a long time. I'm not sure if it ever really had much of a release in Britain. No, but no, I'm whether, not sure. whether Peter Greenaway watched this as part of his uh, Euro education. But yeah, I mean, quite possibly. I mean, it, you mentioned Pasolini before. Mm-hmm. I'd probably put it in in that kind of uh, bracket yeah. of films. Um, I mean, there's some imagery in it as well. I mean, there's you mentioned about the the cow, the nun in a cow, and when I saw that, I immediately thought this is the kind of thing Francis Bacon would do if he was straight. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the sort of centerpiece of this. I think it's the best sequence in the film. Flavia, well, she in, she's inhaling some sort of incense, isn't she, with uh, with Ahmed? Yeah. But then we go off into this probably the best part of five minutes hallucination sequence, which is brilliant. I mean, the thing it reminded me of—it's kind of obvious—but um, the Odorowski he did sort of look like things like El Topo. And yes. Yeah. Holy, Holy Mountain. Because yeah, it's just a real weird cross-cutting of a lot of equal opportunities um, naked bodies. Mm-hmm. They keep cutting back to this scene of this very skinny girl hiding in a cow, sort and she's kind of Farrow looking. Yeah, and she keeps kind of looking around to make sure no one's watching her, as if she's hiding. And then she sort of gets liberated at the end by these. But it's clearly not a prop cow. I think they've put but a bar across for her to stand on. Yeah, it's a carcass. It's, it's a carcass hung hanging upside down by its legs from uh, rafter. It's an extraordinary image. That's yeah, really but the other one in it is of a naked girl as a sort of banqueting piece. But it's not done in a gruesome way. It's just kind of mime or something, or um, some kind of very... Um, what kind of theatre do you call it? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it, it's not meant to be gruesome. It's just hands clawing at her mm. and pretending to eat her, which then get replaced by this weird ashen body. Like a, it's been made out of um, stone or something. Yeah, or like um, the victims of Pompeii, that kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, uh, sort of petrified. Petrified, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's worth watching the film just for that. And it's just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if they... If exploitation did come from Ken Russell's The Devils, I'm not sure if people just thought, well, we need to have an hallucination <laughs> sequence in <laughs> yeah. there. But either way, I'm very glad they did, because I think that's, that's fantastic. And it comes just... B- it's kind of just before the film really sort of winds down with this... Mm. Well, winds, winds up. We don't want to spoil it, but yes, it's well worth sticking to. Basically, Flavia throughout wants to reverse. She wants a revolution of some kind. I don't think she has firm plans, but um, well, it it seems to be. She doesn't know how to achieve it, but once she sees the opportunity with the Muslims, uh, it's it's a it's a chance to turn things around a little. Yeah, or be part of. I get the feeling she wants to sort of unify. I think it's just outright feminist rhetoric to some degree you know she just wants to unify the women and like put down the men screw the uh the male godhead and not screw literally but you know. no that's the uh, the duke has his comeuppance doesn't yes he, you know? oh See, yeah you know, i'm not entirely sure what was meant to be going on in it, it it's quite like, odd because it looks like they're lining him up for um well actually this is a great bit in it they have him tethered down in exactly the same way that the horse is earlier that gets castrated you think oh my god <laughs> But then she gets the girl that he raped to come and she orders her to rape him. And yeah. the girl clearly doesn't want any part no. of this. And it, I think it, I really love that because I think it indicates that Flavia has lost the plot there. Yes. She seems to not realise the mechanics of rape. Rape, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she somehow thinks, oh, well, you do the same to him. But 
it doesn't work. Has forgotten like that. this basic. Yeah, because you because see, then he tries he to get into it. He starts doing himself. it again, yeah. doesn't he? He's like, ha, ah, look at me. You know? Well, he doesn't say that once. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but his eyes, he does. <laughs> he seems to be um, getting into it. But then, well, we won't tell you what happens after that. But yeah, it looks to be going one way in. It goes. It, the other. it goes. It certainly does the go the direction. other. Yeah, let's not talk about the end. But it is. I really think this is one of the best films we've covered. I mean, I watched it a second time last night ahead of this just to remind me of it and yeah it's fantastic other than the fact that it froze on these two <laughs> particular <laughs> moments fantastic I'll, I'll be watching this again at some point I'm sure yeah I'm, I'm definitely maybe this Sunday with my family yes <laughs> just after mass just after yeah well with a French wife you probably eat all sorts of bits of horse <laughs> power is a thing I found right inside the holy Roman church could even be Pope. <laughs> you think I'm mad? Well, I don't care if you do. I wanted to be Pope. So, your daughter's scrubbing floors at the local butchers, you're married to a hysterical Tilda Swinton, and your only confidant is a chess-playing bartender. If you find a suitcase containing £55,000 and can be sure somebody else will get the blame for stealing it, what would you do? Bellatar's 2007 film The Man from London takes this plot from a Georges Simenon novel and turns in a far from conventional crime drama where thrills and suspense are abandoned in favour of lengthy meditation on morality, motivation and fate. Things could prove to be a little more complicated. So I really wanted to cover a Bellatar film. <laughs> and something from the last ten years. Yeah, um... I watched a Bellator film as part of the 70 movie 70 challenge. Movie challenge. Um, I watched the Werkmeister harmonies, which he did around 2000. It which was. It's apparently what he's best known for, isn't it? This is the one yeah. about the circus troupe and the, is it a dead whale. Is a, a stuffed whale, right? Yeah. Which I remember. I remember seeing a still of that. I think it's actually used for the DVD cover, which is this guy's face next to the eye of the whale. I just thought, bloody hell, that's that's a cracking image. I just thought I really want to see that film so I watched that and knowing what that was like I was very intrigued to watch another one especially for this because I know it's always good to get another opinion on stuff and I okay. thought yours would be a very valued opinion really <laughs> because this is quite different from anything else we've watched I'd say um, so far oh certainly yeah I mean we don't deliberately go for low budget trash although there's a tendency to think that stuff's going to be quite inventive hopefully um this what did you think of this i really really liked it really i thought it was great okay um, well i'm going to i have a mindset to watch these kind of films i knew what it was going to be like anyway so yeah, um, i was going to nudge you to discussing that because we've um we've said in the past you are finding that you quite enjoy glacial films don't you where the pace is incredibly slow this is something that's happened um, since my little boy was born. Um, well, probably a, a little bit later. As a result of, I would say. Yeah. He's now approaching two years old, and he's very energetic, very excitable. And when he's awake and I'm with him, it's literally non-stop. It's go, go, go. It's... Um, it's like speed racing. Were, were you not expecting that from parenthood? <laughs> no, I was. This is I why was. I've avoided it so much. <laughs> I value lying down on the sofa far too much to have children. Well, I can do that now and again, but um, so I've yeah, I've developed this taste for 
films that where not much happens um plot wise uh camera movement wise anything <laughs> wow this must have been manner from heaven for you then yeah there's the it was delightful. I was. I mean, you say glacial. Yeah. Um, years ago, when I was traveling, um, I was in South America, and I spent about eight hours watching this glacier in uh, in Argentina. It's it's the fastest moving glacier in the world, apparently, and huge chunks are falling into this uh, river. To me, it was like that. It's it's watching something sublime, something that's huge and sort of overpowering and it doesn't do much but there's something i was so in awe of it and i had this same similar kind of thing there's not much goes on in this film really from beginning to end but there's little glimpses of uh, such beauty you didn't film this glacier over eight hours did you because <laughs> no, if you did i'd rather watch that than, this, <laughs> than sit through this again <laughs> having said that my true opinion of this uh i i did kind of enjoy watching it because I thought it was absolutely hilarious. It was like a spoof of what people would imagine a grim Eastern European pretentious filmmaker would come up with. Because <laughs> it, oh my lord, what is it, two hours ten minutes? Because um, this was one of is these films that, that I kept looking at the um, the time remaining thing on the DVD. I didn't think it was that long. It didn't feel really? that long to me. <laughs> it's a good an annoying thing with this is it was a half an hour in, I think, before anybody spoke, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, Paris, Texas is a really good film. Um, Dialogue-free films are always a big plus for me. As well, it's good if there's stuff happening as well. Whereas this is largely... Is it a fixed-point shot? Not quite. Yeah, the, the main character, uh, Mal Wan, is a kind of railwayman. Uh, he operates the signal points, doesn't he? That's but right, he's yeah. near a dock. And the opening of the film, or should we say the first quarter of the film... <laughs> Is well, we. I don't even know. If, do we know it's him, or do we just get his point of view looking down on the docks? And there's some kind of kerfuffle, but we don't even see that. We there's some. Yeah, it's there's a camera drifts backwards and forwards. You hear a few scuffles and something obviously falling in the water and things. And all right, in fairness, that does build an atmosphere, but it doesn't then go anywhere with it. You then get him sort of striding off to a bar drying out some banknotes on a heater and oh my god it's like I say hilarious because I think the shots in the bar he'll have a chat with the barkeeper about the fact that there's nothing happening you know or <laughs> about he's not had a very eventful day and neither has the barman um, and then you'll just get this um, relentless accordion music which I'm sure we'll be hearing at some point during the show tonight <laughs> which I can't stress doesn't not that I know much about music but it doesn't go anywhere it's like a few bars of music that just repeat and repeat and it doesn't build to anything or there's no key change or anything it just goes over and over it's again wonderful. relentlessly I absolutely loved it and I chuckled every time it just started up again and the camera just sort of panned away to someone playing chess and then back to them sitting there someone eating a bowl of soup someone yeah tucking into a bowl of soup it was how can I describe this film uh, (laughs) you're doing a pretty good job (laughs) no I mean this is I did uh, it's like watching Evolution in real time not the uh, Ivan Reitman comedy (laughs) film no 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 (laughs) the actual oh uh, the actual process what's happening what's happening but I've got to say I then did have to kind of look up the plot because it's one of these that I couldn't really tell what was meant to be happening. This a lot is of the what time. I wanted to ask you about, um, because it's based on uh, Georges George Simenon, Simenon who's a Belgian yeah. um, 
uh, thriller writer. The very famous very one, famous. yeah. And there's actually, on the DVD copy I've got, there's an extra with Tar who's talking about the making of this. And he says, you know, it's, it's, uh, the it's, camera a, running. it's a very simple plot that anyone can follow. And I, f- I completed the film and I was like, I have no idea what happened. <laughs> I, no. I, I don't know who... It's it's my turn to be pretentious. Do you know in philosophy there's Zeno's paradoxes? No. I think I may be completely wrong about this, but I think the idea of that is uh, this is an old Greek uh, philosopher. But the idea of if you uh, anything which has motion and moves from A to B, if you can break that down to infinitesimal points when it's not moving, so where does the motion come from? You know, and it felt like that with this. It's like it was a bunch of incidents that were so drawn out that you kind of forgot what happened from one moment to the next because it's because the characters don't say that much apart from this detective chap who Morrison Morrison. who is the man from London who has a great voice well whoever's dubbed it yeah because the guy who dubs him speaks in French and English right um but yeah, he's, it, there's, it reminded me a little bit of a more refined Lord Crumb from. I'm oh, glad taste. you said that because he even looks a little like him. He's yeah, got a very wrinkled face and uh, like long earlobes and. Yeah. But as with the rest of the film, no sense of urgency. Uh, totally, I, yeah. I mean that because there is I a fairly conventional plot, and indeed you've probably seen this. This has been filmed twice before. It was mm. made as uh, British thrillers, uh, one starring William Hartnell, who, who before he was the first Doctor Who in the '60s was known for being quite a tough guy. I think it was called something like Temptation Bay or something, and you can imagine like quite a tight British thriller being made out of this. But yeah. uh, I'm not a fan of Mike Lee by any stretch, but I know his way of doing things is to film the actors and not give them any indication of what the whole shape of the film is, so each of them think they're going to be kind of the main role. Um, this feels like that. It feels like probably there has been a conventionally made thriller, but they decided to concentrate on this guy in the background. And uh, that's that's a really interesting observation because Tor, like in that interview, and this is how he approaches films. He gets all the camera shots in his mind first, then thinks, then gets the people together, then does a script. Yeah. So he does it in quite an unorthodox. Why uh, bother manner. doing that? There's something that's so pompous about his filmmaking that. I can't help but like it, and the fact that it is, it is really beautiful. I mean, the oh no, I can't shots. deny that. There's some, it's the the photography's crisp and black I mean, and white. That, there's and, a, there's a know, scene where Tilda Swinton uh, goes into the bedroom and oh, the windows. The curtains, yeah. No, it's the other way. They're open, yeah, yeah. and then she closes them. And mm. it, I mean, it's I can imagine it being like a, a Christian sort of image or something. You know, it's. It's not, really not, not in Flavia the Heretic. <laughs> no, <it>? no. <laughs> if she'd hung up a cow or something, <laughs> castrated um, a horse. I'm, I can't say I'm not surprised by your uh, reaction to this. To be honest, <laughs> <By> my philistinism. <laughs> um, but I th- there was like certain elements that reminded me of um, the relationship that uh, Malwan had with his daughter, who works yeah, in this Omid, shop. Yeah, yeah. Th- there was something slightly. Um, Oedipal or Oedipal um, or the incestuous uh, pointing there? I didn't there. think that. I think because his initial problem is he can't believe I think he knows she works at the butchers but they seem to have demoted her to scrubbing the steps outside and whether it's her choice or her employer she's wearing a very short skirt isn't she? Yeah. Because his initial objection when he goes back to his wife Tilda Swinton is anyone can see her ass and stuff. Yeah. Know, as if they've put her out on display or something. Well, that really reminded me of like Gaspar Noe's debut, like Carne, and the one he made after it was uh, Sue Tours, that I Stand Alone, which has an incestuous like father daughter relationship. But that 
it seemed to capture that essence in some way um, where I found myself totally dislike his wife he didn't and she was just at odds with what he was doing yeah I mean that's we don't get we don't get to see nearly enough of Tilda Swinton in this I think I thought I imagined because she was a big name she was going to be the main character but she seems to be there to provide trouble for her husband and in fairness I could imagine to look wrecked um and is she speaking French or is she dubbed? She's d- uh, everyone's dubbed. Everyone's this. dubbed. <laughs> yeah, it was filmed in Corsica in Bastia, yeah. which cost them an absolute fortune. And uh, there this was guy a, sounds it, like a nightmare as a filmmaker. <laughs> but yeah, going back to Tilda Swinton, I thought she was going to have a bigger role, and it seems a bit unfair that she seems to be there not as a harridan, but she's there to be this kind of not quite rolling pin wielding wife. But you can imagine anyone would be at the end of their rope with this guy as a husband because he just <laughs> seems by turns dull and just acting on is boring and yet he acts on instinct you know mm. it's kind of a bit of a contradiction yeah he's, there's he's nothing got, very likable or even knowable about him he's just, really photogenic for this film though I think yeah, like Swinton granted. is you know all the characters have these really incredible faces I mean mm-hmm. You know, th- there's so little dialogue anyway. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of accordion was, music, though. Yeah, which is what I really liked. <laughs> yeah, if I you like accordion music, you're <laughs> in for a treat. I loved all those elements of it, though. You know, the the silence, the the very slow tracking shots, and it really connects with me that kind of stuff. Because there is these moments of real comedy. You know, yeah. there's like the um, the dancing scene in the cafe oh. where there's a guy who's dancing with a chair. Yeah, another accordion moment, isn't another it? Because they, they, they wandered off and the, the camera playing. just sort of carries off to these people by a pool table, isn't it? Well, yeah, because you've got the scene where like the um, Malouin and his daughter are drinking at the bar, or he's drinking at the bar, and then the music's going on in the background and you hear some sort of, sort of kerfuffle, yeah, and on and on. And then, yeah, eventually when the camera bothers to, <laughs> to follow, to track along, you see this... That funny display. It, it reminded me a bit of um, Calvert. Calvert. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it was, you know, so there is some genuine uh, humour in there. Okay, so would you? You do seem to be kind of granting that Bella Taz is a somewhat pretentious figure. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, arrogant to assume anyone's going to be interested in this. Because I no, did read. Go on. I th- I think he there's an audience for this undoubtedly, and I'm part of that <laughs> you, you are that audience <laughs> but um, All of them I mean are here today. if you've read like reviews of his earlier films like Damnation Saturn Tango uh, the prefab people and stuff you know he's really hailed as something quite special by critics you know mm. the the academics and stuff they yeah. love this shit yeah not they us though <laughs> well, no I mean I, I think I like it um I like it from an aesthetic point of view. I I can't get on my like pretentious high horse about it being metaphysical and stuff, which it says on the back of the DVD cover. I mean, wh- well, we what's can't blame him for the blurb on the back of the case. No, but like, what I mean, what is it trying to say? Because well, it's not a clear message. Yeah, I mean, there was a review which I did think sounded interesting. I think there was the one low voice when this came out. And it was getting panned by critics saying this is kind of a plot you'd have seen done a lot of other times, usually in a Hitchcock way with the innocent man getting sort of mixed up in this you know, crime caper, except that would be well, we know those kind of films, and this sort of takes the other side of more about that guy's life, I suppose it's almost um, a bit of an odd comparison in the way that Tarantino um, when he did the Hitmen in Pulp Fiction, constant that would normally in a film be, they turn up, shoot someone and we'd never see them again, whereas yeah. this was all about the minutiae of other stuff, mm-hmm. And yet that was very entertaining because it did make them 
larger than life characters you yeah. got kind of involved in their world and how they're not that professional after all and <laughs> all the kind of things that might concern them whereas this did yeah the thing it reminded me of was Mike Lee without the twee efforts at humour and imagining what working class people's lives are probably like the main thing is this wasn't interesting like I say there was an entertainment for me because I thought it was such it was so poorly done no 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 not poorly done um, conformed so much to how people would imagine a grim East European director would turn this exciting material into something that really crawls along mm. that I found that entertaining but um, no I wouldn't watch it again I don't think mm. I wouldn't mind seeing that sort of stuffed whale film though yeah the Werkmeister harmonies which yeah. is like I found that impenetrable as in like I couldn't understand what they were talking about at all at any point because I just felt too thick to understand it basically but it was again it's uh, I kind of like that I like this the film fact made that me feel stupid yeah I've, uh, you know it's a, it's a it's, you know sometimes films have got a challenge what why you're watching them yeah. you know um, whether that's through boredom and pretentiousness yeah. or through You're doing extremity. a podcast on them. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is one of those films. I mean, it's polarised our opinions and... For the first time, I think it's the first time we've been sort of yeah, at odds with each other on it, you know. That's are, good. Yes. Yeah, it's it's serving a purpose at last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I suppose to sum this up, like I say, hilariously pretentious and, and just conforming to that idea of what these kind of films would be like. But if if he was going for that idea of I don't want to do the crime bit, which you know there's a, there's a, that's kind of a good idea. The other thing, other than Pulp Fiction, is I suppose Alan Moore's comic from Hell, which is a Jack mm. the Ripper. It's turned into a terrible film, by the way. So uh, avoid is, at is all it, costs. Don't don't think th it's the same source material as the Johnny Depp movie. But read the comic; it's fantastic. But that wasn't concerned with the mystery of who Jack the Ripper is. It was more concerned with how that murder was exploited and how it affected everybody in the society around it. And I think that that I thought this could have done that, but it doesn't go anything like far enough with it. So yeah, I agree. It's a it's a beautiful it's exercise in aesthetics. <laughs> I promised my old friend somehow I'd find you. We could come to some sort of easy and swift conclusion. Okay, so heading towards the end of our fifth show, but exciting news. We are, we've, we're live now. Um, well, we have been for a couple of weeks, but this is the first one that we're really recording since uh, we've, we've, you know, people out there have had the chance to listen to us prattling on. Uh, and we've had some really nice feedback, so we just wanted to take a, a minute or two now just to thank everybody who's been uh, sending in Twitters and uh, getting in touch with us through our Hotmail account. Please carry on sending us things there. Um... But yeah, we just wanted to send a quick shout out to people who've sent us some really nice uh, messages of support. So um, just kicking off, I, I want to say quick hello to uh, Nick, Marlene and Tymon, uh, who are establishing a new home out in the desert for the next 18 months. I'll be in touch with you guys soon. Cam and Nikki, who have become parents since uh, our first show, who said some very nice things, although Cam thinks that may have been some pregnancy hormones on his, <laughs> Congratulations. On his girlfriend's half. Lyndon, who's quite a regular contributor to our discussion thread on Facebook. Um, some really good suggestions there. Um, he did want us to do Messiah of Evil, which is from the same team who bought us uh, Howard the Duck. <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, Christopher also on the, um, the, on the discussion. And Ali, our good friend Ali, who... Um, been good enough to leave some feedback on our iTunes profile. Uh, if anyone else fancies doing that, that'll be, we'll be extremely grateful. And also uh, Marty and Mike out in America, uh, who have their own podcast, Flickers from the Cave, which covers a lot of 
Uh, flickers we, from the cave wall, I think. No, I it? think it's just flickers from the cave. You're okay. going all Plato. We're a very <laughs> philosophical show tonight. Flickers from the cave, which yeah, um, covers we we cover a lot of the same kind of shows. In fact, we've both covered the humanoid, but uh, we've had some uh, nice correspondence from you guys out there, Phil. Yeah, I just uh, I'll reel the list off as well. Uh, Mondo Dan, of course, who's been uh, kindly retweeting all the little stuff I've been putting on Twitter. Uh, the boy Ennis has come back with some great little uh, remarks. Thank you, Derek Holtz, Matt Nieder, GFD Edwards, Gregory Joseph, and I'm still frequenting the Mondo Movie Forum, and there's been some really lovely. Uh, feedback and ideas for future shows there from Horatio Huffnagel, uh, Slippery Jack, Pardo, Alec Tot and Exidor. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure we've missed people out, so please don't stop listening to us because of that. With um, no, no, but no. In fact, carry on, carry on pestering us. Um. Yeah, I mean, we're not reading out what people have said because we don't want to take up too much time with that. But you know, not after the man from London. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's good to have feedback always and. Yeah. We're more than happy to. If if you're doing something similar, by the way, if you're doing podcasts or running film nights, or you know, we're more than happy to give you shout outs for that as well. Yeah. In fact, talking of film nights, uh, the Duke Mitchell, who uh, we oh yeah, his Alex. film night we went to the other week, which was great. I mean, the film wasn't so exciting, but I was really glad it got an airing, which was yeah. Paul Schrader's Light of Day with uh, Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox. Um, but yeah, it was a good night. It was nice to. Uh, to meet Alex yeah, and Max Wren and Max Wren yes um, but yeah I think there are a lot of those kind of film nights around London where pubs will hire out a back room um, which Our are great favourite um, cigarette, cigarette burns cigarette burns yes yeah. um, thanks Josh thanks Josh <laughs> yes but yeah any any anywhere in the world if you're doing those um, do let us know um, and yeah we're more than happy to uh, spread you around a bit <laughs> but anyway on with the show Let's get towards an exciting uh, finale tonight. Listeners of a certain vintage might have fond memories of John Norman's gore novels, or at least rifling through their slave girl laden covers down at the local bookstore. The first in the series was made into a non too faithful adaptation in 1987 with physics professor Tal Cabot whisked from a miserable existence of sarcastic college students and the disastrous love life to the epic realm of gore, where Cabot challenges dangers to free oppressed locals from the cast of villainous priest kings, insectoid beings in the book, but here represented by Oliver Reed's sporting hair and a beard which have both turned prematurely orange. So, another one of my choices. <laughs> Choice choices. <laughs> yeah, we're a non-typical non-exploitation and, what was this going to be, a fantasy barbarian choice? Yeah. Um, but we had both tried to watch Deathstalker recently, which is another of these kind of... As a Roger Corman produce, wasn't mm. it, uh, Deathstalker? Which we couldn't really get too far into, so... Um, no. Gore, Barbarians, Oliver Reed. Yeah. It's going to be fun. And it's... Ba- Do you remember... Uh, in the introduction there I mentioned that the books used to have these uh, fondly remembered covers do you remember those at all or are they not a part of your childhood because I think they may have been done by Bruce Pennington who did those classic Dune ones so they look very exciting you know he wasn't just the naked girls on the cover they did look (laughs) like this epic I think there's about 29 books in this series they did have one I remember I think had a guy locked in Mortal Kombat with a giant ant so I was naively expecting this was going to be that kind of action (laughs) Um, Conan versus them. 
well, yeah, I mean, this was around the same sort of time as Conan. Well, actually, some years later, but that did... Conan, the, the film adaptations of Conan did run to special effects and a real fantasy thing. And I feel bad calling this sword and sorcery because there's very little sorcery in it. Um, or magical elements. Yeah, yeah. I have to hold my hands up. I really wanted to see this. I've wanted to see this for a long time because when I was about 11 years old, I lived in London and I had a friend who I used to visit every Sunday and we used to go to a video shop in Wilsdon Green where they would let us watch anything we wanted, basically. And I saw the cover of Gore, which had Oliver Reed's face in this amazing headdress. And I was just like, well, what is that film? It looks mad. And I looked at the back and, you know, there were like oiled, semi-naked people with swords and stuff. I thought, we've got to watch that. But I remember vividly, we both instead opted for a straight-to-video uh, Flash, The Flash movie. Oh, yeah, because um, that was a TV series, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, they made it into yeah, a, they a movie them. Yeah. and um, I remember we were both very disappointed that, by that and ever since I've always wondered what gore would have been like gore and flash <laughs> you know, kind of. but to be honest I think the flash was uh, the flash movie was way way better than uh, gore was this is awful isn't it uh, well it's it, it's tripe it's not bad in the way that Howard the Duck and the, the Sergeant Peppers that we reviewed in the last few shows I really had objections to them I think this is the first film we've reviewed which is just cheap but really tripe this doesn't, yeah it's not inventive one of the first things that occurred to me watching this first time because sadly I watched it a second time this morning before recording this because it made so little impression on me I thought oh, I need to remember at least what happens in it. Um, <laughs> there's an interview with Terry Jones from Monty Python about um, life of Brian. I remember him saying, "Well, the others were all very excited at the idea of doing something, you know, potentially stirring up some trouble with this um, adaptation of the Bible." His thoughts were because he was going to be directing. It was like, "Oh, the Bible! It's so boring. That visually, it's going to be so boring to have all this sort of sand and people in these very neutral coloured costumes walking around." Whereas he wanted to do something a lot more vibrant. Yeah, yeah. and uh, indeed, this is visually incredibly dull, isn't it? Yeah, I was I was amazed to learn that it was shot in South Africa and uh, Mauritius, two like incredibly beautiful, picturesque countries. Potentially, yeah, <laughs> which they managed to look like a bloody mine in Italy or somewhere. You know, yeah, just use quarry. It was oh, it was because when uh, when the, the the lead character his Cabot gets transported there, <laughs> they have him standing up on this little not even a cliff is it? It's like a flat area, mm. and they have this circling shot with this epic music, and you just think. Yeah, it's <laughs> that leads me on to a, um, a point that the music, the music, is, is the it? action of the movie. Basically, it's just so overpowering and overly dramatic to make up for how little is going yeah. on, on on screen. This was made in 1987, but that music, which is it's not quite wall to wall, but pretty much there's only you only ever get about 30 seconds with no music, but it's throughout it, and it really feels like it's something from a good. 20 or 30 years earlier it's it sounds mock heroic now but it sounds like something from a around 1960 or something yeah because it's actually by the guy he's uncredited but it's the chap who's done most of De Palma's uh, early works really? he did carry I think he's I've forgotten his name and I haven't written it down unfortunately so it's Pinaggio I think it's Pinhead <laughs> um, he's an Italian composer and yeah he did like Dress to Kill Carrie which again I've always he did Don't Look Now even 
Don't Look Now is a good soundtrack, mm. but those De Palma ones, I've always thought those soundtracks sounded, uh, you couldn't quite that get odds. a handle on them if they were meant to be sarcastic or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the music is terrible, um, or it's inappropriate. Um, it, but like yeah. you're saying, it's it's uh, there's very there are scenes of scuffles in this, but there's nothing. There's no really coordinated stunt work. We may be getting ahead of ourselves because one of my big problems with this, it does start. I think the very first shot is Tal Cabot, this physics professor, as he claims he is, standing in front of a board with some equations on, holding out this ring and coming up with some gobbledygook about, you know, this is meant to be a gateway to the counter. Or he's claiming that it is. This is a physics teacher, yeah? Yeah, in, I think in the, in the books. Earth. Yeah, <laughs> I think in the books is meant to be possibly a. Fu- no, I, I, I did do a little reading on the books, and like I said, this isn't at all faithful this adaptation. So I can't. I'm not judging the John Norman books uh, from this film, but it's just weird that he'll be standing in the middle of a physics lecture and talking about this ring that would zap people to a counter Earth <laughs> called Gore. I think. Well, that's that's something. Okay. Um, I'm not sure where that's come from, but you'd think then he'd be utterly convinced and he'd be getting mocked for this belief, but then, hi, he proves them wrong and he goes there. Then when he has a car crash, Mark Boland style, goes into a tree <laughs> and wakes up on the planet of Gore, he seems to be like showing his driver's license to people and doesn't really understand what's happened to him. And you yeah. think, well, hold on, you, you know all about this ring, apparently. <laughs> and then you have to have a bunch of locals to explain to you, ah, oh, many more of, like you have come before you. So, <laughs> what? Where am I? You know, you're on our world. It's called Gore. I said, "Oh, appropriate name." It's like, well, didn't don't you remember doing all this lecture to your board students earlier? Um, yeah, just, just that kind of. I think it's a real lack of respect for the audience that it doesn't really seem to have any consistency to it. Because yeah, it's going to be a low budget movie. You want thrills and spills, but you do have to have some work going into the the dialogue and the exposition. Well, obviously not. Obviously not. <laughs> Yeah, what, what's his face? Um, Urbano Barberini, Urbane Barberini. He was really hard to um, to be convinced by him in a, a lead role. I thought. Well, yeah, he's a fairly bland-looking character. He looks a little bit like a Hollywood Roger Daltrey or something. Yeah, he's got when his he's little blonde. Uh, when they dress him up in his gore costume, he remember. Uh, but a dividing thong. Yeah, he resembled uh, Kirk Douglas a bit in The Vikings. I thought. Yeah, the blonde hair swept back a little, uh, you know, the the uh, the leather and stuff. Well, that's something else to be said for this. It's got that <laughs> old cliche of a world which seems to be thousands of years behind hairs, except for the area of hair salons. <laughs> oh God, yeah, for because um, there's what's her name, Talina, Talina, yeah. the slave girl who has the most eighties hair. I think possibly it would even challenge um, Leah Thompson in Howard the in Duck. Howard the Duck, yeah, it's yeah, for a slave girl, it's incredibly quaffered. It's, um, <laughs> But yeah, I think this is something that the books have been criticised for a lot, which is the depiction of women as slave girls and possibly willing slave girls as well. But that's the only thing to really note about this. The plot of this is so much like not even a children's movie. It reminded me more of the cartoons that used to be on TV when I was a kid. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a little too old for Thundercats, but I imagine this would be a similar thing. But certainly as a, as a kid, there used to be a Tarzan cartoon and a few of those fantasy realm type of things. And sure. they'd be these kind of very simplistic, those are the bad guys, these are the good guys, and it's yeah. an eternal battle. It, it really just feels like it was enough to throw some yeah, slave girls and Oliver Reed in front of the camera. And they had um, 
the Beast Raban from Dune was in it. Paul, uh, Paul yeah, Paul L. L. Smith, Smith, who I really loved in this film, and it, watching him in this makes me realise I I really do like him. He's because uh, yeah, he's the Beast Raban in Dune. He's also he's in Midnight Re- Express, isn't he? Yeah, he's this. Um, I was going to say sarcastic, sadistic. Uh, <laughs> what do you call those clothes? Yeah, he's uh, the sadistic sort of prison guard in Midnight Express, and his blue toe in Popeye. So yes. he obviously had a little niche as big bully kind of characters but I love the way that he does hear what he always does which is just look sideways with a thin smile a thin lip smile and it's it works as acting it yeah, does, yeah. he does manage it to convey something yeah. I think it's good act- he manages to convey a lot without really saying anything although again his actions are completely inexplicable he just appears and starts pushing people around <laughs> yeah. and growling is he the growling. owner or something he's or meant or to it? own some kind of local yeah to, um, mm. it's some kind of little emporium with a few uh, there's some slaves girl wrestling it going looked, on it reminded me of the is it the tavern in Deathstalker there's a whole scene like I think that there are always things like mixed this mixed with Moss Eisley <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean the point I was making earlier with this seems like a children's cartoon mm. story wise is it is quite racy as well isn't it yeah you can't see anything happening without a pair of buttocks in the corner of the screen <laughs> and and yeah there is the girls wrestling um all the whole yeah they get branded on their inner thighs it's not explicit by any means but it's a little bit too much for preteen kids well certainly um mm. this, this really seems like a cartoon name for sort of eight year olds or something and yeah um, the, uh, when they're with paul smith they come across the obligatory uh, dwarf on i don't know what the politically correct term is now but we're going to use dwarf in the fantasy um, i think it's a dwarf's a dwarf a dwarf's a dwarf <laughs> but yeah um Again, he doesn't do anything. You'd have thought he'd have some um, some abilities as a thief, or he had some knowledge because people had ignored him, and well, he, he, he was the tipster. He has the knowledge to get them to Oliver Reed's palace, but not to get, not them, to get in. them in. <laughs> but he's a bizarre-looking character because he's got this peroxide hair, and he looks like a sort of mini-me version of uh, the London Mayor Boris Johnson. <laughs> It was probably one of Freddie Mercury's. Uh, oh, with the, the cocaine on his head. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, he's he pretty much sums up the film. You know, it's fantasy, so we'll stick a dwarf in. But there's no reason for him being there. No. He just talks in that kind of way that dwarves do in fantasy films. So yeah, I did really like Paul Smith, although he doesn't. He's not in it for a great deal of time. Oliver Reed appears near the beginning but he's the big villain towards the end and I think he's really good because all the way through I mean I'm kind of interested in Oliver Reed he does look to be putting some work in here because you're wondering what went through his head when he agreed to do this and I think at the time at the time I think for many many years he was trying to he was trying to renovate this mansion he was working in but the work went on for years because he would take the builders down the pub at midday (laughs) and so obviously no work would get done then um so this was possibly something to get his extension done. <laughs> um, I think he puts in a genuinely quite good performance here, given what a ludicrous film it is. He does and have this great thing. Time he has. Yeah, but when he's there, he does seem to be kind of relishing it a bit, and he has this great thing of saying something threatening and then pausing and then laughing to himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He does a fantastic. Almost into his him. hand as yeah. well as if he really has gone round the twist. <laughs> I think he's great. Um, I mean, this isn't really a spoiler, but there's a weird thing with this. In another Hollywood actor turns up 
in the last five minutes. Well, his name is... But his name's, like, third on the title, so I'm not sure why they're trying to keep that a secret. But I I doubt anyone's going to be... Watching Outlaw of Gore. Outlaw of Gore, yeah. (laughs) Jack Palance turns up at the end as another priest king, which is a bit wearying because they've just defeated one priest king. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler that they do finally uh, hoist Oliver Reed. You can't spoil this film. (laughs) (laughs) They've done a good job already. And I was surprised to see that Outlaw of Gore existed because it, mm. it really feels like one of those classic. This would be a good question to ask people: uh, your favourite film that ends clearly heading for a sequel that never got made? Uh, well, Doc Savage is a classic one. I think yeah. they actually have the name of the film. And uh, oh, there's another one. That... Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, Buckaroo Banzai. That's yeah. what I was thinking of because yeah. we watched that not long ago. Yeah, a couple of months mm. back. Um, yeah, and I think uh, Rebecca Ferrati who played Talina, she's in the seconds she's in Outlaw of Gore oh, that's something to, you're not going to be uh, getting hold of that anytime soon I, I can't imagine it'll be any worse but no I'm not going <laughs> to no. but yeah I I'm going to watch it. another Bellator film <laughs> if he directed Outlaw of Gore I'd really <laughs> be up for the accordions of Gore the one thing the one thing I would recommend about this there is a sequence when we're at Oliver Reed's palace um with have a little dance, a little, and I thought that was kind of nicely choreographed. It was probably fairly fairly standard, but compared to the rest of the action here, you think, oh, it's livened up a little no. bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's mm. no good miming the dance down no, the sorry. microphone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the but then I was delighted during the end credits when all these sort of names were coming up, and it just went um, dance provided by the Razzle Jazzle Dance Company. <laughs> who killed my son? The man who killed him escaped, excellent. Then he must be found. And until he is, 100 people, men, women, and children will be tortured. Well, in accordance to the accordion accompaniment. Yeah which is hopefully giving you some flavour of the excitement of watching Bellatars, The Man from London. We've reached the end of show five. We hope you've enjoyed us. We'll be back for show six soon. And like we said earlier, we, we're really enjoying getting some feedback from you. And there are several ways you can keep in touch with us or get in touch. We have our own website. www.midnight-video.com or you can email us on midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk Or you can find us on Twitter at midnightvideo Or go to our Facebook page Do Midnight Video Yeah, you know how it works Yeah, and iTunes as well And please leave us some feedback on iTunes yeah, Even if you just put in a star rating Put in Midnight Video <laughs> Don't put in accordion music. <laughs> or gore. Or gore. G-O-R. Put G-O-R-E. You might but know. we're talking all over this wonderful, exciting accordion music now. So let's just bid farewell to our listeners. And adieu. Adieu. Bonsoir. Bon